Sometimes we encounter stories in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, or sometimes these, these narrative storytelling stories. And you read it, and it feels kind of quick, and sometimes it feels kind of boring. And I sometimes have a head that gets into the imagination of the scene. And there are stories that are probably way more dramatic and more interesting than we give credit to. And we're going to do that today. I'm going to let you in a little bit of sometimes how my brain works. So just picture, the lights go down, the screen comes up. Maybe there's a dense fog in front of the lens. As the lens pushes through, maybe some of the haze is on the glass. And there's just not much light. And at some point, you start seeing these shadowy figures, these silhouettes as the camera moves forward. It are hard to recognize exactly what they are. And eventually there's one close enough and you realize it's a gnarly branch of some tree. And you realize as the camera continues to zoom, there's another branch and another tree and you're actually in a grove, a sort of thicket of these trees. They look like maybe they've been dead for some time or at least are struggling in the desert. And the camera goes in and out and it presses on. And maybe at this point, you've got maybe a bunch of crunch in one hand, a Diet Coke in the other, because they offset each other when you do it that way. And, and so you're sitting there watching the movie. The music kicks in. Maybe it's Hans Zimmer or something very epic at this moment playing in the background. And the camera stops, and the fog begins to clear. You start seeing boulders and rocky edges, and, and in between some of these are these men walking through. They are large men. They're carrying all sorts of different weapons, swords and spears, and maybe like a chain with one of those bowling balls with spikes on it, whatever might be time appropriate. And they have paint on their face. Maybe they're wearing animal skins. Their hair is all matted from their, their military conquests. And the first ones out at front are kind of peeking around the corners and listening and, and trying to scope things out. And the camera pans through this crowd. And, and, and as it widens, you start seeing uh, collections of a few men around a fire. And, and maybe they're eating raw meat and tearing it off the bone as they're kind of sitting down for dinner that evening. And as the camera continues to pan, you see eight groups and 10 groups and 12 groups. And then eventually you see hundreds of thousands on the hillside. Fires speckled throughout as all of these people are sitting down to eat. And as the last remnant of the sun is about to disappear on the evening, the camera zooms across a valley. It goes where the butterflies flutter and there's maybe some rabbits that are frolicking, and it comes up to the other side. And we see a similar scene. But a lot of these guys kind of look a little different. They're farmers and woodworkers. They don't look like they're trained necessarily for battle their whole lives. They are commoners. And they're cooking their meat, and they're cooking it thoroughly, making sure there's not a drop of blood that they're going to eat. And the camera moves, and, and, and it continues to zoom out, and it reveals both sides. And we realize, well, we're being set up for some epic battle. These two sides, this battle maybe of good versus evil, good guys and bad guys. And as good cinematography might work, maybe the scene kind of goes to black. And then a moment 
little bit of gray, and then right on the ridge line, a, a little bit of orange, and then yellow, and then a giant ball of fire starts moving across the sky as day breaks. And maybe the camera starts on that creek again, and it's quiet, serene. Maybe there's a little bit of babbling of a brook. But then you start hearing something. This noise in the background, a low rumble. The little pebbles sometimes start falling into the creek as the ground begins to shake. <clears throat> Maybe you're munching down on your popcorn at this point, right? And your Coke is now watery from the ice melt, and, but it's okay, you're still thirsty, and so you'll drink that nasty water Coke. But you're watching this scene. And the battle begins, and it's hand-to-hand, and sword-to-sword, and spiky bowling ball to spiky bowling ball, and it's gruesome, and people are losing limbs, and people are, are bloodied and left scattered all over the place. Maybe there's a reason why that might be rated R in this moment. Maybe my wife cringes at some of the violence and doesn't want to watch, and she's like, you told me this would be a love story. I'm like, yeah, I love this story. It's great. And, and so this is this moment, this epic battle. And at the time, the battle ends, and then night begins to fall again. Fog starts filling up the valley, and both sides depart their own ways. They'll pick up the battle again tomorrow. And the camera once again pans over the field, and all it sees is 4,000 of the good guys laying face down. And I'm a little bummed. The good guys aren't supposed to lose in this story. The underdogs are supposed to win. But hey, we're only 45 minutes into this movie. There's still hope. The good guys have taken a hit, but there's something that's going to happen. And the camera takes us, maybe. It zooms us into the tents, maybe where the generals are gathering to say what, what had happened. They need to discuss what had happened that day and what they're going to change about tomorrow. And this is where we enter into the story. We're sort of privy to this moment in Israel's history. We are not characters, per se, in the scene, but we are meant to be, to watch it as it unfolds. So 1 Samuel 4 is where we're going to be. If you have your Bible, feel free to open it up. If you have your little movie screens in your hands, you can pull up the Bible apps as well. You're about eight books into the Bible in 1 Samuel. And we'll pick up from there, but the scriptures will also be on the screen. 1 Samuel 4, starting at verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So now we know the characters in the scene. It's not necessarily good versus evil kind of storytelling. It is the Philistines, the arch enemy of the children of Israel. And God's people are defending the very land that God had promised them. So when the day ends, 4,000 of God's people are left scattered in the battlefield. And I stop munching on the popcorn. Maybe I feel like I've been here with them. And maybe even ask the same question that the Israelites ask in this moment. Because that second camera has zoomed into the tent, has sat down with the generals. Maybe they're gathered around some little wooden table with the battlefield planned out. I know it's totally anachronistic, but imagine that happening. And they're sitting there and they're stroking their long white beards and scratching their heads. 
And their question is, why? You ever simply just want to ask God, why? Verse 3, and then the people came to the camp and the elders of Israel. And they said, why? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And have you ever wanted to just call a timeout on life to remind God, God, we're on your side. God, I know you have a lot going on in your, in your, in, in your mind right now, but can I just remind you, I am one of yours. And life feels like it's kicking your behind. and It feels like, God, if, if I'm following you, if you're the one true God, why am I suffering? Why does it feel like defeat after defeat after defeat? What about them? They don't even know you. Why are they winning and feeling like I'm over here and things are just not turning out how I expected them to turn out? And you ask the question, why did the Lord bring defeat today? We don't put that verse too often on coffee cups. I don't know how many of us are like meditate on that one day and night. But it's there. Financially, physically, medically, family, relationally, sexually, spiritually, to ask God, why? Why, if we are the children of God, if we are your people, why are we getting slaughtered right now? And I'm sure as they gathered and huddled in that tent, they had excuses, they had answers that they were coming up with, ways that tomorrow is going to be different than the day before. And I can imagine, just maybe, there's the old grizzled guy in the corner, away from the table, unnamed in the story, puts two hands upon the table. He's not given this name, but when he speaks, it seems like the other men listen. And they say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Gentlemen, let's get the box. We've got this box. Israel has always had this box. And that's what they do. They go get it. Verse 4, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, which is sometimes a fancy word for angels. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there for, uh, with the Ark of the, of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. So they realized what they were missing. They were in this battle and they came to realize that what they had forgotten, that they'd forgotten to take this box with them. And they say, let's go get the box. Remember that box? It kind of starts uh, almost before the box gets built when Israel uh, itself is under the greatest empire at the time in the known world in Egypt. And Israel calls on the one true God. They call on Yahweh. And what God, God does is he, he kind of brings havoc upon Egypt. And he brings plague after plague after plague to the point where eventually Pharaoh, who's in charge, says, get out. And Moses and company make their way to the wilderness, which is a fancy word for just a bunch of desert. And, and they end up uh, meeting God out in this desert place. They meet Yahweh, who had just set them free. And God says, I want to abide. I want to live with you. I want you to build this tent for me, to, to live with you. I want, I want all 12 tribes to camp all the way around it on all sides. And I'm going to sit in the middle and inside that tent. I also want you to build this box. And it's, it's going to be made out of acacia wood. It's going to be like a little over three feet by a little over two feet. Cover it with gold. And on top, build these golden angels as well. 
We'll call it the Ark of the Covenant of God. At some point, they're like, what do we do with this box? I mean, the tent would have been sufficient to imply that God was already living with them. God's like, just wait. I'm going to ask you to carry it around. And you're eventually going to get to this land that I've promised you. And when you get there, oh, guess what? It's going to be flood season. And I'll tell you what, I don't know if you've dealt with floody lands, but to pick out the most heavy piece of equipment that you own and walk into the water is, is probably not the best idea. But that's exactly what God tells them. Get your priests. Go get the box and have them walk in first. And they do. And what happens? The river stops. And the Israelites walk through this dry river on the other side. And as soon as that box leaves the riverbed, the waters start again. It's unreal. And then they end up the city called Jericho. And it's one of the most fortified cities in history at this moment and has high walls, has good defenses. And God says, hey, take my box. Walk around the city a bunch of times. Blow the horns. This is going to be your first military conquest. I'm not even going to give you a weapon. Just take the box. And the walls come down. You can get into battle and lift the lid and all the Germans' face will melt off. It's Indiana Jones, not the Bible, but same box, right? And somewhere in that tent, they realize we have that box. This idea of God's presence, God's help. And they say, let's go get it. Let's get that box. And at this point in the storyline, you're like, all right, I know how day two is going to go now. You got to imagine all these soldiers laying in their cots out in the, in, in the night sky. And at some point, they start seeing some golden reflections from the moon onto a golden box, onto the leaves of the branches around them, waking up, seeing it go by, and just letting out a cheer. They get up, even though they'd watched 4,000 sons and brothers and uncles and nephews and fathers and grandfathers. And sorry, women, historically, you guys wouldn't have been allowed to fight. I'm for it now, but just so you know. But they know day two is going to be different because they've got God, right? And they wake up in the middle of the night and they cheer and the ground starts shaking. And once again, let's pan. Let's pan from Israel across that valley again, across the creek where the butterflies and the rabbits have gone to sleep for the evening. And you start getting to the rocks and the sound of the cheering is bouncing off those rocks formations and starts awaking the enemy. And once again, we're taking actually this view inside their camp as well, starting at verse six. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And the Philistines know the story, right? They're sitting there going, we, we know how this has gone before. We know our history. I'm always a little curious of the details that get left out of the story, right? Like somehow the Philistines figured it out. How do they, how do they find out? My little brain, I imagine, I don't know if you've done pickup sports of some sort, but there's always like the stereotypes. 
There's the dude who was really good in high school and is still pretty good in his 20s and 30s. There's maybe like the, sometimes we call him like farm strong, just that brutus of, a, of an individual. And there's always like the little scrappy guy who's super fast. And you always nickname him like Skeeter or something like that. And I think they had Skeeter. I think the Philistines all of a sudden were woken up. And they hear cheering on the other side. And, and, and they go, someone needs to find out. Let's go get Skeeter. He can go figure this out. And they wake him up. And before they're even done explaining it to him, he's off and running, sneaking across the valley, going to the other side, parting some bushes and seeing what's going on in Israel. And he sees the box. He sees everyone cheering. He sees a newfound faith and encouragement in Israel. And he runs swiftly across the valley again to get back to the other side. And as if the camera picks up with the Philistines again, and maybe they're, they're standing there feeling like, all right, stay calm. We'll figure this out. As soon as Skeeter gets back, we'll know. And then Skeeter comes running in the door out of breath. And they're like, what's going on? He's like, well, they've, they've got their God. And the Philistines are like, yeah, we all have gods. It's God of river, God of rocks, God of sun. What's, what's that to us? Skeeter out of breath, but they've got the box. Oh, woe to us. That's the response. I don't know what woe is in Philistine, but they dropped the W bomb here. And their answer, we can't fight this box. We've seen how the God has dealt with Egypt before. We've seen the movie, they lift the lid, the faces melt. We can't do this. What are we going to go against the box with? At some point, these woes are just laying on multiple times. Woe and woe multiple times. Because the Philistines know defeat is imminent. I can even imagine maybe some of them starting to roll up their mats. And for me, as an audience member, watching the good guys take 4,000 dead the day before, I don't want them to pack and run. I want justice. I want day two. I want revenge. I don't know if you're like me, but I want revenge. It's like, well, that's not a good Christian thing. Well, sometimes I'm not a good Christian. I want revenge. These are the people that have hurt me. These are people that have hurt God's people. I don't want to just get out of it, God. I want revenge. I want to see what God you would do on day two. And still in the Philistines' tent, Imagine a guy with a blue and white painted face. We'll call him Philistine William Wallace. And he's got a speech for the wrong side, but still a speech in 1 Samuel 4, 9. So they just said, whoa, whoa. And then somebody speaks up, I believe, to say, take courage. Be men, O Philistines. Lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. That's a great speech. Wrong locker room. Great speech. So they hear God's people cheering on one side of the valley. The, the Philistines are now encouraged and, and ready to actually go into battle, thinking they may be, might be able to take on Yahweh. And our money, we're getting our money's worth in the storyline now. Who said the Bible's boring? Come on. This is so good. Verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. Every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And at the end of day two, 
as the camera pans across the valley from edge of the screen to edge of the screen, we see 30,000 lifeless Israelites. The creek is now flowing with a crimson red, and within all the soldiers, we see two dressed in white, laying with speckled blood all over them. Not dressed as soldiers. They're Hophni and Phinehas, the next in line to be spiritual leaders of the nation, and they're left there as well. And as the camera continues to pan out, the last moments of the evening sun, we see the enemy marching off in the distance, cheering, giving high fives or whatever was culturally appropriate 3,000 years ago, carrying a gold box as a souvenir, and they disappear over the horizon. Screen goes dark, credits start rolling, the end. And I want my money back. Ever lived a life for God and feel like at times, I just want my money back? And you could say, well, the chapter's not over. Maybe this gets better. It, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. One of the survivors actually goes running back to the city, and uh, Eli, who's the high priest at this time, is chilling in a chair and kind of waiting for word out at the city gates, and they come to him, and they tell him, look, uh, the Philistines, they got the ark, and, and your two sons, they were killed in the battle. And then Eli falls out of his chair and breaks his neck and dies. It's crazy. And then they go into the city, and, and word comes to the village. And, and, and Phineas, the, the next in line to be a high priest, who we just found out had died, his, his wife was pregnant. And she's so overcome with grief and horror at the news that just what happened, she actually goes into premature labor. And in the process, the, the baby ends up surviving, but not the mother. So now you have this baby whose mother is dead, his father's dead out in the field, his grandpa just died at the city gates. There's no one to name him, and so the city kind of comes together, and they name him Ichabod which means the glory of, the, of God just left us. So that's how the chapter ends. It doesn't get any better. And I want my money back. And this is not a lesson that you were probably taught in Sunday school, I assume. It's not the most Sunday school-friendly lesson. It's not what we get told. When things are hard, you just call on Jesus, Right? That'll fix it. Maybe you were taught like that. Just, it'll solve all your problems. Jesus is a means to an end. Maybe you represented the gospel in a way that like one side on a flannel graph board is like flames and stuff like that. And the other side is, is angels and some clouds. And maybe even heavy-handedly, the teacher's like, well, uh, Billy in this classroom, well, your dad could get an axe on the way home tonight. And so everybody scoots away from Billy a little bit. And, and, and the question is, all right, what, what are you going to do? Where are you going to go? And, and if you pray this prayer this morning, you can, you can get the clouds and the angels. But if not, it's, it's fire. Then every kid's like, yeah, I'm going to pray that prayer. Second grade mind, yeah, I want fire. Fire's bad. And Jesus becomes the means to the end. And I think too often, some of those lessons still play out today. We just call on Jesus. How do you get Jesus? How do you get God on your side? Well, just do what they did here. Just, just say, God, we need help, right? That's what they did. They watched 4,000 die the first day. They saw things not go their way. And their response says, know what? We need help. We can't do this on our own. Step number two, they turn to tried and proven methods that they've known have worked before. 
right? Just go through the religious practices that we knew had worked. Read your Bible, do certain things, and it'll all work out. They got the box. It's worked before. Let's try that again. Many of us have walked through that. Circumstances aren't working out, and we try to go through the motions, hoping that we'll fix the thing. And then sometimes the final step of that becomes someone coming along saying, well, you just need to have more faith. How many times have you prayed for cancer? What happened? Cancer still killed. You prayed to get pregnant, and the outcome hasn't come. You prayed for the tumor to stop, and it spread. You prayed for a spouse or a certain way for your life to turn out, and it has not. You prayed for whatever you want to insert there. What has left you late night looking at your wounds and wanting to cry out and say, why, God? Why am I getting rocked here? And the more I pray, the deeper I feel like I'm getting into the hole. Well, you just got to have more faith. Just silly, right? What did Jesus come along and say? Hey, if you have a faith, even the size of what? A mustard seed. That's tiny. (laughs) Jesus wasn't pushing to say, oh, you just need to have more faith, guys. The answer to faith, it's clearly not the answer here because look at the story. They had so much faith that the ground shook around them. They had so much belief that God was going to show up the next day that they woke up the enemy in the middle of the night cheering, shouting about Yahweh. And on day two, what did it get them? They lost 30,000 of their own. And the few that remain are probably scratching their heads around the campfire. And they prayed and they cheered. And perhaps, like many of you, they feel like, thanks for nothing, God. If you don't mind, I want my money back. And it's interesting, the promise of 1 Samuel 4. You might be in a situation where you need God's help and you call out for God for prayer and what you end up with is beat up, depressed, and once again frustrated that God didn't come through. And some of you are like, this is the most depressing Sunday morning I've ever participated in. But this is the wonder of the Bible. There's such honesty. Because isn't this where life sometimes takes us? Where we call out to God We're trying to get God to change our situation. Maybe even, to use the phrase, we use God. And we get tired and beat up and frustrated that God isn't answering. And maybe, sure, oh, I'll get to heaven. There'll be a solution one day. Till then, I just need to have more faith. And once again, the Bible says, no, even a speck of faith. So what do we do with it? What do we do when it feels like we've done everything Sunday school has said? We say our prayer, Jesus to be a part of our life. Uh, if we have a problem, we can come on, call on Jesus and the solutions will just come. Or in adult terms, we're dealing with financial situations, medical situations, relational situations. And at times we act like if we just lift up our prayers and put it into the cosmic soda machine, what's going to come out will be the one thing that'll satisfy my situation. Or maybe we pretend like God's this dog in a, in a crate or a cage or a box. And, and whenever things get kind of scary or things that we don't think we can handle, we let it out and it'll bark and, and deal with our problem and scare it away. But as soon as that's done, we put him back in the box. And then there's another thing that pops up and we let him out to bark and then we put him away. 
And if you don't like that analogy of treating God like a big dog, I don't think he likes it either. And in the story, I would argue, it feels like God metaphorically kind of bit his lip in this chapter. He said, kids, this is going to hurt. But I'd rather be with those who fear me than those who want to use me. And it's going to be a tough, season, tough lesson. You see, in that moment, the Philistines had a clear fear of God, of what God can do. But at this point of the story, it kind of feels like God's people just wanted to use as this big Coke machine or a dog in the box. And God will not be used. Dale Ralph Davis says, what the Israelites did that day was not Christianity, is rabbit foot theology. This idea that God could be this lucky charm to win the battles. And maybe someone has taught you that way. That if you just pray for things to go better, they'll, they'll go better. But why do we pray? For things to go better for you or for you to meet with the Almighty God. And what the Israelites, I would argue, did that day is think that their God was useful, but not necessarily worthy. And if our view of God is about his usefulness in the moment, then we may lose our box as well. And maybe you were taught that you just say a prayer and Jesus will be part of your life and that's how things will get better. But let me promise you, Jesus will never be a part of your life. He's way too big of a God. He did not die on the cross to be a part of your life. He did not die on the cross to be a cosmic Coke machine. He did not die on the cross to be this dog you could take out of the box and all your problems will go away. Jesus will never just simply be a part of your life. Jesus wants to be all of it or none of it. He's not satisfied with only a part. His call on you is to be all of it. And what was Israel doing in the battle in the first place? It seemed like they were there without God to begin with. And then suddenly they thought, well, God, can you come and fix this now? Instead of getting religious and going through the motions as the Israelites did, God wants it all, our hearts, our thoughts, our desires, our passions. But too often, we come along a little late in the game. Say, God, I want you to fix my finances. God, I'm in a tough spot, but God's never been a part of your finances up to that point. And suddenly you think he's going to bless your finances that you have built without him in the first place? Why would he do anything with your finances when they're sort of your finances, separate from him? Or praying about a relationship that God's never really been a part of to begin with, and you think he's just going to come along and bless you to continue in that relationship, even though it's totally built apart from him. And Israel seemed to have not much of a desire to walk with God, and then suddenly call on him when the time gets tough and use him. And God responds in some ways to say, this one's going to hurt. The entire point of following God is to sign over your ownership to him. Everything we are, everything we have, it's not ours. But too often we say, I don't want God to change my life. I just want him to bless it or at least work out most of the situations. I don't want God to change my life. I don't want God to change my dreams. And most of us don't explicitly say that, but live as if that's true. I don't want God to be Lord of my finances, my sexuality, my relationships. I just prefer him to bless things 
that I have planned apart from him. At some point, as most of these stories go, there is some resolution to the story, but it takes a couple of chapters. Uh, we end up at 1 Samuel 7 by the time we get a resolution to it all. It says this, starting in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, a long time had passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asherah and they served the Lord only. It seems like for 20 years. 20 years they had cried out. 20 years they lamented after the Lord. They mourned. And God did not help. And eventually Samuel, who stands up in the way that Samuel does in these stories, stands up and says, do you really want God? Then go home. It starts there. Get rid of your Baals. Get rid of your Asherahs. And at the time, Baal's uh, a god that was often tied to crops and um, uh, provision, finance, and success. There was a lot of that tied to Baal, as well as some really terrible practices. Asher was a god of fertility, sexuality, all those kind of things. So Samuel says, go home, deal with sort of your success and finances, and deal with your sexuality. And aren't you glad we don't live in the gods of success and sexuality anymore? Look at your house. Look at your life. Look at how you spend your money. Look at how you think about your money. How you choose to bless others or not. How you choose to find a whole lot of hope in those things. Look at your sexuality, what you click on, what you call entertainment, what you pay to see and watch and all those sort of things. And you want God to bless that? And the call is to come and serve him only. Then I will walk with you as your God. God hasn't simply come to bless your life. God has come to claim your life. All of it. And on that day, I would say in Israel, people stopped playing the game. And they realized they were frustrated with a God who loved them too much to bless their life. Because what they were living was taking them so far away from God. And God's like, I can't help you on that journey. And I will do everything to bring you back to me. And it's a hard lesson. And if it will cause you to awaken to who God is, then brace yourself. To say less of God, give me, give me, give me and more of God make me into what you want. His goal is to change your life. Now hear me, we talked about James in the fall, we've talked in other passages, that there's certainly times of suffering that are circumstantial and external of you. So not every moment where there's a, a loss is a moment of correction. But I will say that all forms of suffering are always moments of maturity. And it's always a moment to at least take stock and to look, to go home 
and to see where the Baals and Asherahs and other forms of worship might be. And the crazy thing about the story, too, is that no matter what Israel did, no matter where they went, no matter the various things they decided to start bringing into their country, God didn't give up. And God took them back time and time again, over and over. We have a God who outloves the wrongs. And he's made his promises to Israel. And we, as followers of Jesus, have even deeper and greater promises. We don't have a high priest that's going to fall off a chair and break his neck. We have a high priest in Jesus. We have one who stands in the gap in some ways between what is a true and right response to sin, which is death, between us and a holy, holy God. As we move into a time of communion, we celebrate that. We do communion here every week to remind us that we have a type of covenant, an agreement, a, a relationship with the God of the universe where he invites us in. Not because we've cleaned up our act does he invite us in, but after inviting us in, he says, this is what I want for you now. May we never flip those, otherwise we lose the gospel entirely. But a Jesus who died on the cross, who lived a perfect life, glorifying his Father in everything because he knew we couldn't. And he died on the cross. The only person who didn't deserve death in the universe died. So that we would get life, eternal life, now. Not some future cloud angel thing. Now. We get to taste and to see that the Lord is good. Now. And as we stumble forward, learning to trust May we also see at times the, the losses, the suffering, all those things as a moment where we're still in the hand of a God who wants the greatest out of us and put his spirit in us to produce that. So as you come home forward to take communion, uh, I invite you and the band can start coming out. I invite either one person from your party or everybody individually, it's totally fine either way, uh, to come forward. Uh, we have little communion cups for now. I hope one day we'll go back to regular communion. These are my favorite methods of communion. Um, but um, little cups with a wafer on top and the juice underneath. Uh, you can return to your seat. There won't be additional liturgy, so as soon as you return to your seat, you can partake and we'll continue to worship through song. And let us sing and respond to a God um, who loves us too much to let us be where we're at and wants to continue to do a work in us. And sometimes that'll come through rain and storms. Sometimes that will come through sunny days. But when we take every one of those moments and press in and wonder if we're using God or desiring to actually be changed by God. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And God, you, you love us in such a way that uh, we can't even get our heads around. That we don't need to 
walk in perfection and perfect obedience, whatever it may be, but that the very good news that you brought is that it is simply by faith that we come to you. But God, you are doing a work to transform us. As we even sang last week, if we're not dead yet, you're not done with us yet. And so God, when those lessons are hard, may we turn, repent, return to you. May your spirit do the work that your spirit does. And God, even if it's circumstances outside of us, not because of specific sin, may there still be moments to move in and trust you more and more. I pray all this in your name. Amen.